Okay, let's get started. Welcome everyone to the Hot Politics Lab, uh, April 2021, or I don't know, 40th edition already. <laughs> and uh, here to stay for uh, at least uh, a couple of uh, more weeks uh, until the end of this um, uh, this year. And then, uh, then we might actually have a hybrid meeting where some of us will be together, and uh, but you'll still be able to follow us online. Uh, today, we have a great speaker, Teresa Kuhn, uh, from uh, the Department of uh, Political Science, my department, and uh, uh, um, I'm very happy to uh, to have Teresa here today. She is actually in between two research groups, um, the Challenges Research Group, in which uh, I am, and uh, the Political Economy Group. And moreover, she's talking today to a mostly political psychology crowd. So it's really quite uh, within the discipline of political science, it's really interdisciplinary what Teresa does. You might call it inter-niche. And, uh, uh, and, um, and so I'm very happy to have her as a colleague and recently also as a fellow director of the uh, Challenges uh, Research Group. So uh, Teresa's talk will be about European identity. She's published extensively uh, on this topic. And uh, without further uh, delay, I want to give you the floor, Teresa. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, thanks for inviting me. Before um, I start with my presentation, let me just say it's actually not so much about uh, European identity for a change. Um, it's actually um, about the um, uh, yeah European solidarity and risk sharing in the COVID-19 crisis. So identity, of course, plays a role. But in this part, it's actually going to be less about uh, that particular angle. Can everybody see my screen? Let me just put, um, yes, here on the full screen. Um, so in a way, it's very nice that we are presenting this paper here a year after the crisis struck, because basically around that time, um, I started talking to several colleagues of mine, uh, Björn, Mauritz, and Francesco, um, and we were thinking about how we could actually um, research um, EU solidarity and risk sharing in, in that particular crisis. And we received some funding from um, ACES, Amsterdam Center of European Studies, but also AMSIS, Inequality Studies, and also Universities of Ghent and Nijmegen to conduct a, a survey experiment in five European countries. Um, and I'm going to present some, some results of this uh, experiment here. So again, this paper is co-authored with Björn Bremer, Mauritz Meyers, and Francesca Nicoli. And um, I think I have seen both Björn and Mauritz in the participants list right now. So I'm happy that they're also here and uh, I might give the floor to them for some questions. Um, so questions of solidarity were really um, yeah, central in the European struggle to respond to the coronavirus crisis. And there we can say that actually the EU didn't uh, really show, and especially the member states didn't show themselves from their best side. So a year ago, there was really quite some controversy about uh, how the EU should respond or member states should respond to this crisis. Italy and Spain were the countries that were hit most in the first wave of the crisis, and they historically have had also a hard time in the in the previous in the Euro crisis. So they were already on pretty um, 
unstable feet and they actually ask for help from Northern European or other member states. Uh, and in the beginning, <clears throat> um, several member states and most notably the Frugal Four were very much hostile towards the idea of sharing resources and sharing risks in here. And here, um, especially the Netherlands and Wopke Hoekstra also really played a very dominant uh, and not so positive role. Um, it's quite interesting to see that a year later, even their Dutch colleagues think that he has a difficult negotiation style because that also came very much to the fore in, in these uh, debates a year ago. So this uh, crisis really reinforced a divide between the North and the South that already existed um, due to the Eurozone crisis. And it um, really also brought it to the public debate. So here you see, for example, the cover of Elsevier Wegblatt where uh, they uh, depict the Northern Europeans as the hardworking people, whereas the South is just basically, um, yeah, laying in the sun uh, and, and um, exploiting the work of the North. Um, against this backdrop, it was actually very interesting and very surprising that actually only five or four months later in July, 2020, um, national leaders agreed on a joint uh, recovery and resilience facility of uh, more than 600 billion euro. Uh, so this is really the centerpiece of the so-called next generation EU uh, plan, which is really in a way groundbreaking and uh, yeah, the largest ever um, recovery fund of the EU. Um, and um, it was also um, remarkable, not only in terms of its size, but also because it relies on joint borrowing on financial markets, something that um, both national leaders, but also uh, citizens generally are quite critical about. And uh, more than 50% of these 600 billion or 672 billion actually will be uh, given in grants. So this means that member states individually don't have to pay them back. So this makes it quite a unique uh, moment in uh, European fiscal integration, and especially with respect to how uh, uh, divisive the situation was before. Um, Against this backdrop, we conducted a survey and we uh, asked the um, several important questions here. So we wanted to know what do you know citizens think about public uh, uh, about European solidarity and risk sharing in this particular crisis? What drives support and especially which aspects of these policy packages actually drive support? And then how is support structured uh, within? countries, but also across countries. Um, and this question, of course, ties into a larger research agenda on public support for European solidarity that um, um, yeah, I'm researching on, but also my co-authors. Um, and there's quite some research done on um, public support for international solidarity in the EU before the COVID crisis. So um, in the context of the Eurozone crisis, um, but also later with respect to uh, the refugee crisis. And what we know from that research is that in general, people are less uh, supportive of international solidarity than of national solidarity. 
Um, and this has to do with um, a lot of different aspects. So from a social psychology perspective that people are generally more likely to share uh, with people that are more similar to them. And of course, yeah, member states combine people who are, who share some, who share more traits that say like this than the EU with, with its currently 27 member states and different languages, uh, different traditions. Um, the other reason for that strong national solidarity is also just historical that we have been in a way framed into national solidarity because of very strong national welfare states in Europe. Um, so this makes, makes it in a way difficult to overcome these national boundaries of solidarity. The people who are most likely to overcome these boundaries are people with European identity, those who are more highly educated, they show more support for European solidarity, but even they in general prefer to um, share at the national level. Um, and you, um, you can also say that support for European solidarity is a bit more um, contingent upon how uh, coverage, um, how the, yeah, in a way the conditions are to receive benefits. So people are a bit more critical about uh, under which conditions somebody receives, uh, other member states actually receive uh, money than in national solidarity. There's some emerging research on um, solidarity, EU solidarity in the coronavirus crisis. Um, and here we find generally that um, there's more support for medical solidarity. Um, so, for example, sharing PPE or having patients being transferred into other hospitals than for financial solidarity. Um, we also see here that cost benefit calculations are, are really an important factor. Um, but even in this crisis, there's some research that shows that, um, yeah, you can overcome national divides here and agree on, on some kind of joint uh, definition. Um, these studies are all based on one or two countries, um, important countries, of course, in this crisis, such as Germany or Italy. Um, but we actually contribute here also by looking at several countries at the same time. Um, against this uh, theoretical background, we uh, conducted this study in July 2020 in five countries, France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands and Spain. And we chose these countries because yeah, France and Italy, uh, excuse me, Italy and Spain were the countries that were most, um, um, that were hardest hit in the first wave. Um, and um, the Netherlands was one of the most prominent opponents to uh, European solidarity in this crisis. Um, and Germany initially as well, and France was somewhere in between. Um, in each country, we had a random sample of uh, 1,500 respondents. We wanted to have um, a sample that is representative in terms of age, gender, education, and also regional um, distribution. So therefore, we, we imposed quota for these uh, factors. And uh, the conjoint that we in the end designed was based on the actual policy debate. Um, and here we... Uh, um, varied it on six important policy dimensions. Um, um, before I go into these dimensions, uh, let me just quickly review what is a conjoint experiment. 
Um, I'm sure that most of you are familiar with it, but maybe not everyone. So this is um, an experimental method embedded in surveys to estimate uh, the impact of profile attributes on, on preferences for multidimensional issues, such as, for example, policies, but also candidates for political uh, uh, position, etc. And uh, it works in the way that uh, respondents receive, they see different profiles, mostly two at a time. Um, and these profiles differ uh, on, on several dimensions. And uh, respondents are then asked to rate and rank these profiles. And these profiles then refer to either policy proposals, candidates, or whatever you're actually interested in studying. It has uh, the methodological advantage that um, uh, the, these dimensions are randomly assigned. So it's, it's um, yeah, it's, it has a stronger uh, leverage with respect to causality. Uh, theoretically, it's also very interesting because you can elicit trade-offs between that people face between these dimensions. Um, in our um, particular question in the, um, with respect to um, European solidarity in the COVID-19 crisis, we actually, uh, and looking here at this uh, uh, recovery and resilience uh, facility, we find that there are three, um, three meta dimensions, which we then uh, split up in six, I should say it like this. The first one is scope. Um, so what is the purpose of this facility of this fund? And how long does it um, will it be in place? I'm sorry that there's the N missing. I have problems with my uh, with my um, with my keyboard at the moment. So there's either one N missing or one too many. Um, no, that's a different thing. Um, risk sharing. So how is risk being shared? And here we have uh, the questions of how is it being financed. Um, is, is the facility being financed? How are the funds being distributed and how are they repaid? And finally, uh, the dimension of governance refers to uh, the decision-making um, at which level it actually takes place. And uh, so here we show you uh, the different six dimensions and uh, the, the possible options that we have identified for each of these dimensions. So the purpose of this facility can either be only focusing on healthcare, or it can also include the economy or healthcare and measures against climate change. So again, we really designed this with respect to the policy debate that was taking place at that time. Um, and I will show you in a moment also how um, the, um, yeah, the current next generation EU actually looks like. So this is basically purpose is the first uh, dimension of scope. The second dimension of scope refers to the duration. So how long will this facility be in place? And here it can be either fully terminated once the crisis is over or it will be used in future crises. With respect to risk sharing, we have three different dimensions. The first one refers to financing. So um, this uh, fund is financed either by just taking money from existing resources, such as the budget, or the EU borrows additional money on financial markets. With respect to repayment, um, this can either happen in forms of loans, so each country pays back what it receives, 
or it can happen in terms of grants. So money, uh, all countries would pay together and rich actually pay more than the poor. Finally, with respect to the distribution of these funds, uh, you could either have um, 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 size, country size based distribution. So um, you receive um, the same per inhabitant or a needs based distribution that countries hit hard, hits hardest by the crisis receive more. Um, with respect to the governance, here we look at decision making and it's either the European Commission, so a supranational institution that decides or it's in, uh, intergovernmentally, the finance ministers of member states decide together or each finance minister decides individually. So you might ask how uh, this now looks with the current uh, next generation EU facility. So here we see that this is a facility that is focusing on healthcare and economy. Um, it's a temporary facility. Um, money is borrowed additionally on financial markets. Countries pay, repay together. Those hit hardest by the crisis receive more. So needs-based and uh, European Commission is the main decision-making power. Here I'm showing you how uh, this conjoint in the end looked for respondents. So uh, they receive here two different uh, policy packages um, and then have to uh, give their opinion on which one they prefer and how they actually uh, rate each of these um, options. This um, particular exercise was repeated uh, three times. Um, so we have 45,000 observations. In other words, each respondent uh, rated six of these uh, profiles. <coughs> um, what I'm going to show you now is basically um, the effect of each individual attribute on, uh, on support for uh, um, such a package. And in other words, um, yeah, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, more to the, if you see a figure more to the right, this means there's uh, more support for a package because of a certain attribute and <coughs> figures more to the left, decrease support. And we actually <coughs> see here that this is just general, so basically the main attributes, um, we see that people in, in general prefer a package that um, uh, focuses on healthcare and climate change or the economy, so a more general package. And we see also that borrowing significantly decreases support for such a package. I don't go now through all steps. Um, we see here in general that citizens prefer a scheme that focuses on healthcare and economy, draws on existing resources rather than borrowing, relies on loans, is needs-based with long-term duration and with intergovernmental decision-making. <coughs> what we focused on here in this paper and also in the pre-registration um, plan was how this differs across countries. Um, we were reluctant to really have hypotheses on the main effects because we thought it's difficult to identify a general pattern of how people across countries prefer this policy design. We actually think that 
there will be stark cross-country differences that reflect national interest. And here the main question is <coughs> whether somebody is on the receiving or on the giving end. And our pre-registered hypothesis was that in Italy, Spain, and France, there will be a higher support for packages that have a wider scope, that are financed um, based on debt, with joint repayment, distribution is based on needs or reflects needs, and uh, with a long-term duration, because these are all aspects that are in the general national interests of these three countries, because especially Spain and Italy, and lesser France, will actually receive um, something from this grant. Um, and in general, um, the cross-country differences were less stark than we had expected. Um, nonetheless, in three particular cases, we do see um, um, yeah, significant uh, cross-country differences. Um, the first one is with respect to um, repayment. And we, here we see a clear um, cross-national uh, divide between Italy and Spain who want to have grants and uh, Netherlands, Germany, and France who um, are more in favor of um, loans. I need to very quickly get something from against my cup. I'll be right Yeah, back. yeah, go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> maybe, a, maybe a Corona test, uh, Teresa. <laughs> Let me just uh, fill up this, uh, this uh, little uh, caveat in our uh, uh, presentation with, uh, I see a lot of uh, new people uh, today again in the list of participants. So you know, if, you're, uh, if you're interested in what we're doing, uh, you can actually listen back or watch back all of the presentations we've had in the last year. Uh, you can uh, go to Spotify or YouTube and, 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 and type in the Hot Politics Lab and you will find all of these uh, talks. Uh, moreover, if you are a PhD student and you would like to present, uh, please let us know uh, because we have uh, dedicated uh, uh, um, graduate Fridays where uh, each time two PhD students will present. So just shoot me an email and then we can, uh, we can book you in for the next semester. Well, Teresa's back. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah, thanks. Okay, good. That's the disadvantage of working from home. You don't have anybody in the audience who brings you a glass of water or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's right. Anyways, uh, thanks and sorry for the, inter uh, for the interruption, but I think it's in everybody's interest. I'm feeling a bit better again. Um, so I started with this first cross-country difference between um, basically the two biggest recipient countries Italy and Spain and the rest who, um, and here Italy and Spain wanted to have grants versus Netherlands, Germany, and to a lesser extent France uh, were more supportive of uh, loans. Um, the next cross-country difference uh, that we identify here is with respect to the duration of such a fund. Um, and here, um, Actually, countries agree that it should be a long-term or permanent instrument. However, uh, Italy, Spain, and uh, um, France um, are more supportive or I think even stronger about this. 
Um, and then similarly with respect to uh, the distribution, all countries actually think that there should be a needs-based distribution. So those countries that need it most receive most rather than size-based. But again, here, Italy and Spain, the ones who are on the receiving end uh, are most outspoken about this, um, about this question. And then something that surprised us um, was that actually all the populations of all five countries are actually clearly against the idea of joint borrowing on the financial markets. So here, everybody just seems to be fiscally conservative and against the idea of, of making joint debt, no matter whether you receive, whether you gain from that debt in a way or not. Um, we also looked at individual differences, um, and here maybe the results are very much in line with what we already know about European solidarity. So people who have more pro-European outlooks are more supportive of grants, um, needs-based distribution and of supranational governance. Um, Left-wing voters are more in favor of grants and of climate change. And otherwise, um, and I should always say, when I say more supportive, I mean more than uh, the anti-Europeans or the, the um, uh, right-wing voters. And otherwise, however, there is strong agreement on the general policy design. So um, people generally seem to be able to, do, to agree on, a, on how such a fund should look like. We also looked at how uh, this particular um, policy instrument that now has been uh, agreed upon next generation EU, how this is actually being supported. Um, and here we see that um, it receives majority support, not only in the general, uh, in the pooled sample, but also when we look at uh, the individual countries, not very surprisingly, the Netherlands are most critical about it and Spain and Italy, the, the two um, recipient countries um, are actually most supportive of it. Let me come to the conclusion. So in general, we find some support for risk sharing in this crisis and also in particular for the instrument that is currently in place. Um, the, in general, the, the differences across and within uh, countries are probably less pronounced than we would we would have expected, and I think a lot of other people would have expected. Um, there is agreement on certain dimensions and very strongly so, especially with respect to uh, joint borrowing, and there seems to be enough space for a compromise between and within countries. Thank you very much for your attention. Thanks a lot, uh, Teresa, and I certainly hope you weren't counting on Maurits uh, uh, answering any difficult questions because he just left. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Um, so, um, as always, uh, you can type your questions into uh, the Q and A box uh, that you can see uh, in the middle of the the, the, the Zoom bar, and uh, I will read uh, uh, the questions out loud to uh, Teresa, who will then. Uh, hopefully uh, uh, answer um, any questions. Um, now that we're kind of waiting for the first um, questions to appear, let me ask you a question about conjoint experiments that I have always had. And I hope by now that there is actually some sort of a solution uh, uh, to this. Uh, how uh, 
how how do you how, how can you think about conjoined experiments in terms of statistical power and finding um, the effect sizes that we need given the number of different profiles that people can see? Yeah, so I mean, in general, there are a lot of there are some uh, different ways of calculating power. They're mainly referred to uh, power with respect to the main dimensions and not with respect to interaction effects. So it's much less clear how you can calculate power with respect to, yeah, what does this mean for left versus right wing um, respondents. Um, with respect to um, the dimensions and also the amount of profiles, um, I um, there is some new research, I think, by Kirk Bansek and colleagues um, that that is very um, optimistic about how, or, or let's us be very optimistic about how many uh, profiles you can actually show. So they, um, it's been a while since I read that paper, but I think they even say you can have up to 20 profiles um, that you're showing to, to respondents with the amount of um, respondents that we have here. So I think in our, um, in our particular case, uh, we were actually pretty um, yeah, conservative with only having six iterations um, or six different profiles. It's now done much more with many more um, profiles, but also more dimensions. With respect to the dimensions, I usually am hesitant to include more dimensions, not because of, yeah, I mean, dimensions don't really matter with respect to the power, but then the different attributes per dimension. Um, I'm just generally a bit hesitant to overload that because uh, it might just become too complicated for respondents. So um, the more dimensions you include, the, the more complex the whole issue becomes. Yeah. And then regarding the number of rounds, how did, did you see any differences between the rounds? Um, Yes, I think I, I conducted three different conjoints in the last year. So um, we, um, and maybe Björn can correct me on this one. Um, I think people become a slightly more negative or, um, in the third, in the second and third round. Um, but in general, the patterns remain the same. So there is some small effect of, okay, this is the sixth profile that I see and I'm just a bit less enthusiastic about it. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, uh, also need to get a glass of water. Uh, I don't have any questions yet, so I, uh, I do want to encourage you uh, to, to ask a question. I, I can tell you that Teresa doesn't bite, so <laughs> right. And even if she does, I mean, it's on Zoom, right? It's exactly. Don't worry. Um, Hey, let me, uh, um, what strikes me is that these, the responses of your respondents are very much, well, they're kind of very much in line with, with what you'd expect given the particular political economic context of each of these countries. But what yeah. would be really the, the theoretical mechanism by which people uh, come to these opinions? Yeah, so here we actually, um, you are in a way hinting at our second experiment that we conducted here. So we had another um, uh, priming experiment and if we had already 
worked that out more, I probably would have presented that here, um, where people were informed about uh, the voting decisions of their preferred party uh, on such a fund. And here we actually saw that that knowing what your party, uh, how your party voted also uh, had an impact on, uh, on your um, preference here. Um, and I think in that respect, um, in, in, especially in this particular case, um, cues from parties and from national governance played, I think, a very strong role. So in general, I think with respect to solidarity in the EU, you can say there are two other dimensions that are important. One is what do you generally think about our, uh, European integration? The other thing is, uh, what is your left-right position? So people more generally on the left are also more in favor of solidarity. And then the third cue, in a way, is what does your national uh, government, and especially the parties that you actually prefer, um, think about this? And I think here, in this particular case, we could see that third um, that third factor play really a big role. And it's not surprising because in, in that particular time of um, the crisis, um, yeah, national governance played an important, um, more important role uh, in politics than otherwise, because I mean, the, it was just a time dominated by press conferences. Um, we all got to see our governments, our, our prime ministers, et cetera, almost on a weekly basis talking about this crisis. So I think people had more direct cues on, on how uh, their governments thought about this than, than in normal political times. Okay, thanks. Looking forward to, uh, to seeing that second experiment. There's a question from uh, Tobias Rohrbach, and he writes, uh, interesting study. I may have missed this, but what statistical controls did you use for the models? For example, did you see any differences for uh, gender? Um, yeah, let me just think. It's been a while. Um, so I think... Um, I mean, in, in, in the first instance, we did control for, for um, the usual things such as gender, um, um, age and education. Um, those controls, I think here would mainly increase um, um, the efficiency of the model and not so much in terms of the bias. Um, I don't remember what we found with respect to gender. Um, I think here it's most important to then just look at these interaction effects that we actually conducted with respect to the different dimensions and, uh, um, and individual factors. And here, um, yeah, as I said, uh, pro-European people were more in favor of, of uh, grants than non-Europeans. Um, so we also had some differences with respect to left left and right, um, but we did not include any interactions with, with respect to gender. So, so I think, um, yeah, I would have to really look up the, the models and the tables to, to fully answer the question with respect to gender, but uh, it did not seem to play an important role here, let's put it like this. Okay, thanks. Next question, uh, Matthijs Rodin. Thank you, Teresa. Cool project. 
you frame it as a story on EU solidarity and risk sharing. My question is this, to what extent do you think your findings indicate that this is more a story about self-interest and less about the EU and risk sharing? Respondents in recipient countries want grants and are more supportive of long-term support. Others want loans and short-term duration. Do ideas about the EU itself really matter that much in this respect? Um, yes, that's a good question. So I think uh, it's, I mean, first of all, we do see that at the individual level, um, questions of the EU itself also matter. So that people who are more pro-EU are in general more often more generous and more less strict um, uh, um, coverage. Um, and I think at the country level, we also see that in a certain way in that, I mean, the Netherlands is also a country that is more Eurosceptic than probably, um, yeah, um, Spain and Italy. Um, and the question then is, of course, how, where does this Euroscepticism come from? And I think here self-interest always plays a big role. So um, I think solidarity is always um, impacted by questions of self-interest. And uh, we, we also see that here. So I, I'm, I'm not sure whether we disagree so much, Matthijs, uh, in, in, I think we might just have a slightly different interpretation of, of what solidarity is and, and the way that I see solidarity, it, it, it's, it is not completely altruistic, but it's also a willingness to, to share risk and resources also based on, on, on what you actually expect um, to get out of it. Um, yeah, let me think. Um, yeah, I think that's how I would answer the question. Okay, and uh, maybe Matthijs has a follow-up question. Uh, but in the meantime, Christian, you had a question too. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, do you have any kind of um, like post hoc idea um, why you did not find the preference for grants over loans in France? Um, that's a good question. Yeah, I... Um, um, Maybe France, I mean, France was somewhere in between and maybe French people saw themselves more as being on the giving end than on the recipient end. Um, so maybe it was less clear to, to the French respondents at that age, uh, at that time. Um, I, yeah, I'm just looking if, if Bjorn is still here, if Bjorn wants to just put something in the chat <laughs> to answer this question. Uh, I'm. I'm happy to to read it out um i i think it, it just generally also reflects i mean and this was i think the thing that we were most surprised about was why are you know across the board is everybody against um joint borrowing and i think um both of these aspects have to do with people being relatively um conservative when it comes to taking um, debts. So I think while people in Europe are willing to somehow, you know, share resources and to, to, to help each other, this whole idea of, okay, let's go and, and 
um, and make debt either individually or as a country or as, as the EU is something that a lot of people are a bit scared about. And I think this also comes back with respect to, to France. Okay, Björn writes something. He writes, a, it's a good question, but it probably also reflects the fact that historically France was always a net contributor rather than a net recipient. But to be honest, this is mostly a post hoc rationalization. Um, yeah. So, um, but I think, um, yeah, in a way, also what I hinted at, that they see themselves more as contributor. Thanks, Bjorn. And on this theme, uh, I mean, at least for the Netherlands, people take on huge debts, right? So it's, is, is, or do you see this as a distinction between what people would do in their private lives and what people would do, would, would want the government to do? Yeah, I think uh, I've been thinking about the Netherlands here because exactly I'm always struck by how much people take on debts in the Netherlands compared to Germany and Austria, for example. However, I think the Dutch see it very much as investment and not so much as a debt. So it's um, I take on a debt to get a house and this is how I invest in my house. So it's a very different framing at the individual level, I think. Um, but um, I think, yeah, the Dutch in the Dutch case, I think it might be more also just the idea of giving, I think here really of giving the, the money to other people. I think that's that just plays a big role here and to other countries. Okay. Uh, there's a question from Haley Kelsall. Uh, hi, Teresa. Uh, Thanks for this interesting presentation. I was wondering if you could reflect a little on how much or how little attitudes towards EU solidarity in this global crisis differ to other crises. Well, we've had a few in the last 10 years, so... <laughs> Yeah, thanks. Thanks. It's a really interesting question. Um, I think, I mean, we we looked at, at um, for example, the question with respect to joint borrowing. This has been asked in previous surveys already also. And that is, for example, something that we also found back then that people have always been very, you know, hesitant to the idea or um, that that the EU should uh, jointly borrow money on, on the financial market. So this is something that um, has remained relatively stable. Um, with respect to other aspects, I think um, in this particular crisis, it's perceived more as an exogenous crisis. So Corona just hit as a virus. Um, and um, in general, there's more support for solidarity, for European solidarity in exogenous crises than in endogenous crises, such as um, the sovereign debt crisis. However, also here we have to say that national framing plays a role. And uh, of course, for example, the Netherlands wanted to frame Italy's problems in the beginning as, oh, they don't have that, their finances uh, under control and they have a bad medical system. So also here, whether it is really perceived as exogenous or endogenous always depends on, on the framing. Um, but I think in general, there is more support for solidarity in this particular crisis um, because it was much more seen as something that, as a risk from outside and something that also could have happened to us. So to the Dutch or it also did happen in the end. Um, so I think in that respect, um, this joint fate and joint um, is, is playing a bigger role. 
I'm amused by the fact you said that it happened to us in the end. I think you meant it happened to us a week later, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I think, um, I mean, even in summer, I mean, in, in summer 2020, when, when this um, uh, recovery plan was agreed upon, uh, the Netherlands was still, I mean, pretty positive about how everything had gone. And there were even these voices, are oh, we exaggerated and, uh, um, in the end, the whole crisis was not so big. So I think, yeah, it would be interesting to see how how um, things would have evolved now with such a survey um, in, a, in a second wave now after, survey wave after a couple of virus waves. Good, okay. Uh, Haley says, thanks. And we have a next question from Matthijs. Uh, could you tell us more about the role of political knowledge in such conjoined experiments? These are all pretty technical matters of which people, most people will probably be relatively ignorant. Mm -hmm. How have you dealt with this issue? I re realize that looking at the moderation effect of education is problematic because education itself, of course, also affects these attitudes. Yeah, so um, I mean, yeah, there are uh, several answers to this question. So first of all, um, so this is the third conjoined experiment that I have been co producing with other people in a year. And this one was the one that we actually set up the most quickly because we had to, because we knew there was gonna be a decision. With the other two, we had uh, really uh, pre-tests and also more qualitative pre-tests where we, um, um, yeah, really um, piloted the study and, and to see what do people, um, how do people understand the survey, uh, the questions, et cetera. And that actually uh, showed us that people in general were quite also, yeah, quite able to, to understand the survey. Um, there are also several robustness checks um, that we have included. Um, the other thing is that even if people are not completely informed about um, the policy, um, situation um we actually don't want to you know we don't want to have an informed decision but more like okay what is in a way also a bit their gut feeling about joint borrowing etc so we think they're okay with with a relatively you know simple language uh you can still get uh people's people's opinions on 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 these quite complex issues um, it's also important to know that we, for example, have also a, um, a tension check at the end of the survey, and um, there's also different ways to see whether people understood it by, for example, looking at uh, inconsistent answer patterns, so that they say, I prefer package A, but then they give a, pa um, a better rating of package B, etc. So there are several ways to, to make sure that people in general understand it. Um, and so with the three surveys that I have now conducted, I'm actually much more optimistic and positive about uh, this method than I originally was. I was pretty critical in the beginning and thought it's way too complex, but in the end, um, a lot of people seem to be able to, to understand it and to That's the attention check, because they probably just scan 
the whole survey and read very quickly, whereas uh, people with lower education really take the time to, to read it. Really? <laughs> yeah. So at least that's uh, what we've had in several surveys now. Oh, wow. Gee, I, you know, I would, I would take that out and publish it as a separate paper. <laughs> that, that strikes me as very unexpected, uh, yet very important. Uh, okay. yeah. But it may underline a, uh, actually something else. It's not so much that they qu too quickly read um, the instructions. Maybe they do that too, but also that they are the ones with the more crystallized attitudes. And so that that they uh, that they are the ones that they kind of decide. They also read the treatment too quickly in that sense. Yeah. That could there, do you have any data on this? I mean, I, I could, did you look, for example, at how long people looked at uh, the treatment texts? Um, I don't remember. I don't think we did that in this case. No. Um, I think it was not really an option to yeah I'm, I'm not sure anymore Björn if you remember uh, fill me in please but I don't remember yeah. but um, it would be definitely interesting to to look at but I, I I agree with you so I think that people who who are higher educated they are you know they're more used to skimming texts and they probably might also do uh, the whole experiment in itself quicker but uh, I don't have any data on it yeah, or um, what, what, what I'm concerned with is people who, who take a lot of these surveys and then just try to finish it as quickly as possible. And then, uh, and these might this might be correlated to being highly educated. Yeah, um, I mean, in general, um, we were surprised that there were not so many people who didn't pass the attention check maybe also because they did so many of these surveys that they know how to uh, look out for it. But um, it, it made us relatively optimistic about it. In a different conjoint uh, on European unemployment insurance, um, we actually had an additional open question. Um, so we first had people do these conjoint and then we asked which of these dimensions did you find most important or which, you know, what was really leading, guiding your, your preferences? And it was really interesting to see that. So, and we did that in 13 countries. And I think in five, we actually took the time to really um, code the, the answers. And there was a correlation between what people gave in the open answer uh, answers and what, you know, their answer pattern, uh, the preference pattern in the conjoint. Um, so that also really made us um, quite optimistic that actually conjoints are, are you know, a good yeah, a good way to, to, to analyze uh, multidimensional preferences. Yeah, maybe uh, on that. That's why I call it next generation EU. Yeah, next, yeah, that, that, yes. Yeah, next generation EU. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, so you can, of course, ask uh, in a survey, what do you think of next generation EU? And then you get, um, depending on how you...
And I think, um, so first of all, these kind of uh, conjoined experiments are very useful to really understand what is behind these preferences. Um, so again, with, for example, this, this facility here, as I said, it depends very much on what is your EU preference, but what is your left-right orientation? And, and by looking at these different dimensions, you can then see, okay, um, certain people are in general in favor of, of a European scheme, but not if it's based on, on redistribution. So you can get basically different combinations of of these latent um, latent dimensions. Um, <clears throat> the other thing is that you can understand much more why certain people oppose, um, for example, such a facility, because um, you, yeah, you, in a way you get just much more information out of people than just answering yes or no, or very much in favor or very much against uh, such an issue. I think that is really the the, the biggest advantage. Um, there's also, of course, questions with respect to you know really the causality, the causal impact of different dimensions. So in in normal survey questions, you often have questions of endogeneity, so that people who think um, certain issues are important then also are more in favor of it. And the third aspect refers to to um, social desirability. So. Uh, you could imagine that a lot of people don't actually want to say that they are against joint borrowing. So if you just ask them one question about joint borrowing, they say, oh, it's actually not that bad. But combined all in one, in one policy package, uh, this particular issue is a little bit hidden. So people are less likely to just, you know, hide their uh, opinion on this, um, yeah, the whole social desirability is le less obvious than in other cases. Ah, yeah. Bjorn also just writes something. Uh, um, yeah, so Bjorn writes that we don't have data on how long individual respondents have spent on the tasks, but we excluded respondents who have completed the entire survey extremely quickly as a robustness checks, but this did not change the results. Um, Okay, and only so we asked people whether they wanted to be recontacted and only very few people didn't want to be recontacted. Um, and so we think that not very few, only very few people were annoyed by the survey. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I think uh, just in general, I think uh, um, uh, acquiring uh, uh, response times of, uh, of uh, respondents is, is, uh, is a really interesting measure. I mean, this is quite typical in social psychology, but not in other fields. And it is quite easy if you, if you do a Qualtrics uh, design, it's just a box you need to tick. So, yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, an interesting recommendation yeah. uh, for the future. Yeah. Hey, there's uh, one short, well, one question, and we don't have a lot of time left. So I hope we can give a short answer. Uh, Matthijs asks, uh, could you tell a bit more about why you think the effects regarding governance are small compared to the other effects? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I think it had probably, I mean, to do with the fact that it is maybe, it was maybe at that moment, the, the question that was most abstract to people. Um, 
So I think in, in that particular time when the survey was done, there was a lot of discussion about who should benefit from such a scheme and how should it be financed and uh, uh, should it be paid back? So really individuals, yeah, individual and country self-interest um, was very clear there. And with respect to, um, you know, whether it's in the finance ministers or not, maybe this played a bit less prominent role in, in the public discussion. Um, it might also be that people didn't really see so much of a difference between the commission and uh, a joint decision-making by finance ministers. But again, this is a bit more post hoc um, than really clearly related to, to it. Maybe Bjorn wants to put something in the chat um, then I can read it out. Yeah, uh, then he has to be extremely quick because uh, <laughs> it's time to, uh, to round up. It's almost four o'clock. Um, let me then uh, first announce uh, the schedule and if uh, Bjorn wants to add something, we, we can do that very quickly. Uh, next week, uh, we have a, uh, a talk by Liz Connors from the University of South Carolina. It's titled Partisan Social Pressure and Effective Polarization. Uh, highly relevant topic, of course. And then the week after that, we have Graduate Friday again with two talks, by, uh, first by Tobias Wittmann on uh, titled How Renewable Energy Divides Politics, the Impact of Wind Turbines on Moral Emotional Language in Political Discourse. And uh, uh, we also have a talk by Micah Homan, um, uh, which is officially still to be announced, but I think this will be about um, recognizing anger in, in, in female uh, politicians. Then we have a bit of a break. Uh, there are a couple of public holidays and uh, 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 and, uh, and, and a personal holiday, I must say. So uh, <laughs> we reconvene uh, May 21st with, with Cameron Brick. All right. Uh, yes. Uh, Bert, by the way, apologizes that he couldn't be here. He actually was supposed to join us halfway, but even that uh, 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 wasn't possible due to all kinds of uh, nasty Corona stuff. Um, nothing to add, I read here. Okay, great. Uh, thank you, Bjorn, for your uh, assistance. And uh, you and Teresa have, uh, have uh, deserved a, a hot politics coffee mug, like all our presenters. And uh, uh, once I'm back in my office, I'll start distributing those. And uh, at least for you today, it will be very easy for me. It's just one door. Uh, and, um, and where's Bjorn at? Which university? Loan, uh, Max Planck Institute. Okay, okay. Well, that, that's a bit longer. But uh, yeah, hopefully I will get it to you uh, somewhere later this year. Okay, thanks a lot, everyone, for listening. Uh, thank you, Teresa. Thank you, Bjorn. And thanks for all the questions. And uh, I hope to see you next week with Liz Connors. Goodbye. Thanks. Thanks.